0: All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be bouncing between Luke 1 and 2 this morning. I just wanted to um, start by saying uh, it is good to be back uh, in the pulpit after being gone on sabbatical uh, January, February, and March, and it has been a joy to go on that. A sabbatical, if you're unfamiliar with that, is a period of time to get away and work on spiritual refreshment, restoration, rest, and all of that. And I've been in ministry 27 years, and that was the first sabbatical I ever had, and it was a life-changing time for us, Uh, and the team asked me to give a sabbatical report, and I actually thought that would be fairly boring to do uh, for a sermon on Sunday, so I'm actually going to cut about a one-hour video of what I did on sabbatical, the journey I went on, the practices I did. You'll even get some vacation pictures from the Mediterranean on there, and uh, and I'll give you access to that. I like what Ruth Haley Barton says is the greatest thing we can give in our leadership is our own transforming self, and so uh, I believe God transformed uh, my wife and I on that uh, three months away. So, And then thank you for your faithfulness, uh, <clears throat> your love for us uh, in that as well. Um, today, what's... A uh, popular topic within the Christian church is this idea of um, deconstruction. People are deconstructing uh, their faith. And uh, I uh, think that the fact, the, the reason most people, I think, are deconstructing their faith and sometimes are going down the hill without breaks is because uh, they probably have not gone through the journey of constantly deconstructing their faith and reconstructing it. And I feel like, um, for me, you know, I think a lot of people hit this, this stage in the second half of life where you're kind of realizing that maybe the tools of your faith in the first half of life aren't as helpful in the second half of life. You know, I've learned on sabbatical that it's usually, uh, this is not a new thing, it's called the inward journey or the dark night of the soul, or hitting the wall, but it's where God starts to mature you. Um, And I believe we all actually need to be deconstructionists and reconstructionists, where you actually, your faith has a chance to stand up to the harder questions of life. It's really hard when you've been raised in the faith and your religious leaders taught you that this was the right, one and only right way to do things, And you've come to believe differently. That's a jolting experience for some. But the sign of maturity is actually when you quit copying the gurus that God has placed in your life. And you actually start following God for yourself. And so I hope to give you a little bit of a window into that this morning. um, That you can have a faith that is always reforming and always uh, deconstructing and reconstructing. For me... Where I'm changing is I feel like the last two years, spiritually for me, have been fairly dry. My spiritual practices of just reading my Bible and praying in my devotions uh, did not seem to be producing life for me at all. Like, my intimacy with Jesus uh, was vacuous, and I feel like um, as much as I tried, nothing jolted that. I created a Spotify channel of just songs to Jesus. I did all these things to try to, like, revive this dry part of my soul and so sabbatical is like my big thing was I want intimacy with Jesus, my wife, my boys, um, and, and I believe the Lord has stored my soul. Uh, so I want to give you a, a window into this. I'm going to do it by talking actually about Mary, the mother of Jesus, because I actually think it'll give you a window into something that I've deconstructed and am reconstructing in my own life. Um, and hopefully in a healthy way. My first uh, encounter with deconstructing this uh, part of my life, and there's a lot of rivers to this, was my son, uh, my second son, Champlin, uh, basically said, uh, I need to explore a deeper part of my own faith. Like, I need a faith that's deeper. Deeper than what he would describe sometimes as happy, clappy, evangelical Christianity, you know? So my son has joined the Orthodox Church, the most ancient version of the church. And I started, obviously, if your son's doing this, you're like, what, what is he up to? And I started attending Orthodox Church services, and I had never, you know, been to one before. And so the first one I went to, you stood for three straight hours, you know? I was like, "Well, this is a little different. Uh, when, when can I sit? And, um, and one of the things that troubled me was how much actually Mary was talked about in the service, the Theotokos. And I was like, of course, my evangelical like antenna went up and all these things. I mean my parents converted out of Catholicism, and so I was tutored deeply into why uh, we don't uh, venerate Mary. But then on sabbatical, we landed off of a cruise ship in Ephesus, and we were picked up by a tour guide, and that tour guide um, basically said, we're going to go visit the last home of the Virgin Mary. And I was like, meh, you know, I want to go to the ancient town of Ephesus. And I was like, why do I feel that way about the mother of our Lord, you know? Um and so I visited that home, um, and I have a uh, photo of it there. That's, that's the last home that we know of of Mary. Now, Matthew Champlin is over here uh, saying, no, no, it's not, because Matthew knows exactly where her last home was. Uh, but the sign actually says it was the actual home, Matthew. So, and it's on the interwebs. So uh, we know that that is her last home. That's... Um, but it's right outside Ephesus and the reason, there's six reasons why they believe this was her last home. And one of those is because Jesus at the cross said to John, take care of my mother. And uh, we have John's grave that is undisputed there at the Church of St. John right down the hill there in Ephesus. And so uh, if John fulfilled his duties, she's probably uh, was somewhere around there. Um, but I was, why was I, meh about visiting her home? Because I think I was taught to be. I was taught a lot of things that Mary was not. She was not sinless. She was not our mediator. She was not a perpetual virgin. She was not gloriously ascended into heaven instead of dying. She was not immaculately conceived. Um, You definitely were not to have a statue of her in your yard or a picture of her in your home, and you were never to pray for her. One author I read on this calls it reaction formation. Like we react against everything that perhaps the Protestant Reformation reacted against the Catholic Church on. So then we drag her out once a year for our nativity scene, and then we pack her out of sight for the rest of the year. I basically inherited a completely deconstructed Mary. And I actually believe it's a completely inaccurate picture of this wonderful woman. So today I actually want to take you through my reconstruction uh, on a brief bio tour of her life through four different scenes. Best I can tell, she appears about 12 different times in scripture. Uh, Why study her? She's the mother of God. So that is a good reason. Um, She's the only woman who ever uh, walked with Jesus from conception to resurrection. The only human being. Like Nobody else did that. Uh, she is. She knew him first. She knew him foremost, and she knew him most profoundly. And she became a disciple and stayed a disciple until her death. She is everywhere in Scripture, 217 times. You could say this: that the Gospels are her memoirs. How else would they have known the story, right? She's everywhere in Christian literature. There's over 2,000 books just written. In the last hundred years on her life. And by the way, we hold up men to be emulated like Paul and Barnabas and John. So why not Mary? And the Bible does say all generations shall call her blessed. So why don't we? When's the last time you blessed Mary or were blessed by her? So obviously this began kind of this deconstructing type uh, journey in my life. So the first thing I actually want to bring to your attention is that Mary wrestles with her calling. And if you're in Luke chapter 1, I believe there's these elements of uh, who she was that makes her uh, really fascinating to study because I think you can, as Beekner says, listen to your own life while you're listening to hers. But Mary wrestles with her calling. And of course, in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, God shows up and jolts her. And I've kind of mapped out this uh, four-point paradigm in my study that kind I, I, I came up with is this journey she went through in these four different scenes from her life. The first one being divine disruption. What is divine disruption? This is when God shows up in your life and you realize from that point on it's going to be different. You meet the man of your dreams. Right? Uh, or you actually get a diagnosis that says, oh, for the rest of your life you're going to be this way. It can be an event, a revelation, it can be news, it can be positive or negative, but you know life's not going to be the same. Well, the revelation, the divine disruption to Mary was, you are going to have a child, and this child is going to come from God. And just to help with the deconstruction of perhaps what we think of with Mary, I'm going to have a visual up here this morning through the different scenes of her life. And the first part of that visual is I want Jaden Larson, she would come. And uh, she's agreed to do this. So she would sit in the chair over here. Jaden is 13 years old. And scholars are united in believing that Mary at the time of the divine disruption was between the ages of 13 and 16. So I want you to picture yourself at 13 years old and God appearing to you and saying you're going to have a child. Now, she's already engaged to Joseph. Do you have a boyfriend yet, Jaden? No, okay, all right. Um, And once, once this divine disruption happens, she is spoken to by Elizabeth, Gabriel, the Magi, the shepherds, and Simeon. I mean, you can imagine the overwhelming nature of the revelation of something radically is different in your life. She runs and tells Elizabeth what has happened. By the way, she becomes the first purveyor of the gospel story when she does that. And then she sings the Magnificat, which Monica just read. Perhaps it's one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. It's an exact mirror of 2 Samuel 7 when Hannah prays this prayer about Samuel. And here she now, as a 13-year-old woman, sings this song that, uh, you know, symphonies have been written around this song. God chose a woman. A child was going to be had by her from an insignificant town with no heritage, no family of origin of Mary was mentioned. And she was unmarried. Her, Her greatest significance was perhaps her insignificance. How insignificant Mary was. And she sings this song. And if you read the Magnificat, it's almost all past tense. This woman was saying, God has now done it. He has done what he has promised. There is not a story in human history where a woman went through what Mary went through in Luke 1 and 2 over the period of one year. There's not a story in human history like that. So there was divine disruption. But then there's these painful... Ramifications, but when God disrupts your life, even if it's super positive, there's going to be these painful ramifications. The cost will be severe. The Bible says in verse 29, she was greatly troubled. Basically, this was a death sentence to her life because she was unmarried. So if you look at the law, like this, this had these ramifications to it. The shame that would happen as a result of this for the rest of her life. And then Simeon says in Luke 2, verses 34 to 35, he says to her, a sword is going to pierce your soul. You're going to give birth to this child who's going to deliver the world, but a sword is going to pierce your soul. So she then begins, what I would say is the third stage, is a period of intense contemplation. This is where you experience the doubt, the lack of understanding. Dots are not connecting but God is driving you to a place where you have to listen to what he is doing and understanding his complex love. This is almost this is almost always a time of ambiguity. With Mary there's always seems to be something that she understood, something she did not understand and accompanying emotional pain. Is that not your experience as a believer? There's some things you understand, some things you don't, and some accompanying emotional pain. But in Luke 2:19 it says Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. If you look at the words, the emotional language of Luke 1 and 2, she treasured things, she pondered things, she marveled, and she was greatly troubled. If you look at this idea of pondering, it means to reflect deeply. If you look at the idea of treasuring is to protect, to store up, to preserve knowledge or memories, this is a self-reflective life, an art I think that's largely lost within the church of Jesus Christ. On sabbatical, one of the things, the tools I stumbled into, I read a book by Calhoun on the handbook of spiritual disciplines, 86 different spiritual practices. And one of them was this prayer of examine that you pray every evening. I've been in my church my whole life. I have a seminary degree and nobody ever introduced me to the prayer of examine. It's been around for thousands of years where you basically end your day and you ask God for light. Then you list out in gratitude what you saw of grace in your life that day. Then you sit there and as the ancients talk about it, you say, where did I experience desolation and consolation? Where did I move away from the Lord and to the Lord? And then I look at the day ahead. It has transformed me. This idea of examine. But then this other discipline was a discipline of contemplation. It's an actual true spiritual exercise. You wake up to the presence of God in all things. Rollheiser says in his book, The Shattered Lantern, that contemplation is to be contemplative, is to experience an event fully in all of its aspects. You actually survey this life experience. And by the way, it can happen over lunch, something that happened over lunch, Or it can be uh, something significant, a turning point in your life. But contemplation says I actually survey it in all of its aspects. I walk all the way around that thing. But I have to slow down and I contemplate the experiences of my life. When you begin contemplation, you are now open to seeing the unseen world. And as one author says, the contemplatives sift the days for symbols and they scan the sunsets for meanings. So I encourage you to begin a practice to contemplate the days of your lives, the events of your lives, the emotions of your lives, the people of your lives, and ask the question, what is God doing? You're only going to get there through contemplation, not through a pastor necessarily. You are going to examine what God's doing in your life. Well, then Mary experienced, I think, this idea of faithful dedication, where as she goes through this kind of... uh, disruptive experience, she actually comes down in Luke 138, She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In the midst of not all the dots connecting, she sat there and stayed dedicated and said, whatever the Lord wants, I will accept his will. So that's scene number one. Scene number two. Mary deals with costly and confusing kingdom realities. Okay. This is the scene, if you're in Luke chapter 2, you can go to verse 41. But this is now 12 years after the birth, so I've asked Jocelyn. Jocelyn is my, you know, in the movies she have a different character. Jocelyn is now Mary, uh, and Jocelyn's very close to Mary's age, uh, but we think she was between 26 and 28 years old uh, at this stage of her life where she takes Jesus to the temple. She experiences this divine disruption because she takes Jesus uh, uh, her and Joseph go to the temple uh, for Passover. And what do we know? We get a little clues in this passage where they have to take two turtle doves. Why? Because if you couldn't afford a lamb, the poor could take turtle doves. So still living in poverty at this time, still uh, with Joseph. Here she was the mother of the future king and offering the sacrifice of a pauper. Now we believe based on Christian tradition that she probably was going up with her whole family an extended uh, family as well. So there could be as many as 100 people traveling up for Passover in this caravan. And as if you can picture that, um, and in the evenings, you know, the adults are probably all around the fire and the kids are all out playing, right? Uh, and as the caravan goes, uh, it's probably one of the greatest memories that kids have in their life. But they actually go there, they do Passover, then they all leave, and they're a day's journey away. They stop at the very first 7-Eleven to get fueled up, and Jesus is missing. Jesus is missing. How many of your parents have ever had, even for a fraction of a moment, this terrorizing thought that your child is missing? Raise your hand. You, You never forget it. Like It sears your soul, right? So they are 20 miles north of Jerusalem. There's no internet. There is no FaceTime. They have to journey back one full day and another day of scouring Jerusalem. It was three days without Jesus. So you can imagine by this time you're on the news, right? You're weeping. You're postering everything. Like you are out there saying we have a problem. This is the divine disruption of Mary's life. Well, she finally discovers him. And she says to him, Why have you treated us like this? <laughs> I get that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Anxious. She uses the word. You're not going to have a non anxious presence when you have a lost child. Period. End of story, right? <laughs> and Jesus goes, Why were you searching for me? <laughs> oh, man. You want to slap a kid? Like. <laughs> I would have slapped Jesus. I don't, I've never slapped one of my kids, but I would have slapped Jesus right there. I would have. And he says to Mary, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Oh, oh, oh. oh Self-righteous little brat, get in the car, right? He was standing at the exact spot where 12 years earlier, Simeon, Simeon had said to Mary, a sword is going to pierce your soul. She was standing right there. The sword was beginning to pierce. He was saying on that spot to his mom and dad, I am fulfilling a vocation and a calling in my life that is going to supersede my loyalty to my family. You can imagine being Mary. You have to assume this is not a normal child, right? And by the way, none of you have a normal child. I'm dead serious. You will not be able to get a parenting book to perfectly help you parent that child. Because you don't have a normal child. And you have to steward their calling. You will have to pay more attention. And you're going to have moments of terror in your life. What are they doing? Right? So then in Luke chapter 2 and verse 50 is this period of intense contemplation. It says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Does that sound familiar? Mary was the ponderer, treasurer of the scriptures. And it says he was obedient to them. That means she did not relinquish her motherly responsibilities. She continued to teach him, to shepherd him, to love him. But she was asking, what is God doing? This idea of treasuring, this prolonged consideration that is often inconclusive to try to understand and to try to meditate and see what's happening. In one of the books I read in preparation for this, an article was written by Bonnie J. Miller McLemore, and she talked about it in parenting. I want to talk to his parents briefly. She says, In contemplating your kids, she talks about it in three categories. The first one is attention, that what are you going through as you parent your child, but do you know where your child is at? Besides, she says, seizing them and using them or rushing to give them answers, are you actually asking the question, what is God doing in their life? Or you're primarily saying, what do I want to create out of this child, right? We give the kids enough oxygen to actually do the and say, I have an unusual child here that's been called and created in the image of God. What is my role with them? Then she says the second phase is anguish. I was like hit by this. She says parenting is essentially a journey of loss. I mean, I was in here on Wednesday night, and one of our leaders from Cross Purpose um, had a little, like a nine-month-old little boy. And I just held that little boy. I put his cheek up against my cheek. And I'm reflecting. My boys ain't that anymore. I don't, let, I don't hold any of them, right? They're, they're, they're big boys. But man, I re, it was, they used to be so cute, you know? <laughs> they used to be that quiet. Yeah, you're, you're still cute, okay. Uh, psychologists call, call this loss disenfranchised grief. Saying we actually don't sit as parents and ponder the stages of loss that we go through. I mean, scrapbooks are basically a journey of weeping, right? Of, of all the losses that we go through as parents. And nobody really pays much attention to it. And sometimes we lose our child. We lose them physically. We might lose them spiritually. We might lose them emotionally. And then they leave our nest. You can't love a child without experiencing empty nest syndrome. You can't do that. It's impossible. So we have this attention we pay to them, this anguish we go through, but then this amazement. (laughs) We always wish there were more moments of amazement than there are, but there are those moments where you're like, wow, look what God is doing. Kid. They threw me a surprise uh, 50th birthday this week. A lot of friends came, and my four sons got up there. And I was like... Uh, I, I could easily meditate upon areas I screwed up as a dad. Uh, things things I wish I would have been. But in that moment, I was overwhelmed with amazement at my four sons. and How different they are and how grateful I am for them. One of the things on the sabbatical is I said, I'm going to stop living a life of regret as a parent. Can I encourage you to do that? Even if you've got a newborn, you're never going to feel like you're enough, ever, ever. And if you do, you're probably a jerk. (laughs) If you think you've got it all figured out, right? Don't create children in your image. Create them in God's image. So she ponders her faith story. She seems ready to embrace the patterns and rhythms of God's kingdom, but Mary had to deal with a child that was hers and not hers. And, and so it is with each one of us. We deal with kids that are ours, but they're not ours. And then we have this moment of faithful dedication. She went down to Nazareth. Um, he was obedient to them, and she continued to parent him diligently. Then Let's go to scene number three. Scene number three, Mary undergoes conversion and transformation. Jesus has now begun his public ministry. We think he's between the ages of 46 and 48 years old. So my next movie star is Monica Moreno. Is she here? Okay. Can I have a 46 to 48-year-old 40 woman come sit up in my seat? Jenny. Jenny. I did not ask you your age by the way you volunteered it so 48, 48 years old okay in Mark 3 um, we come to this really interesting spot in verse 21 let me just set the stage he's now begun his public ministry he's no longer 12 years old. he's probably 30 years old, 31 years old um, and um, he is now starting to actually show who he is. He's upsetting the religi- religious leaders. He doesn't seem like he's really assembling the band that's going to overthrow Rome. And his family, his bio family, is basically saying, including Mary, he's doing this thing wrong. And it says in Mark three twenty one, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And you know who led the group to go to Capernaum? Mary. And she took her other sons and said, we're going to go get him. And they show up to the house where he was having a meeting. And his mother and brothers arrived. In verse 31, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? There ain't a mom. Who wouldn't be hurt by that statement? He looked at those sitting in a circle around him and said this. It's even worse. Here is my mom. Here is my brother. Here is my family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the shocking moment of her life. Because she's actually hearing her son change her relationship, his relationship with her. Jesus was supposed to be leading a political insurrection and purge sinners from the land and not eat with them. And Jesus says, I'm creating a new family. What is the painful ramification of that moment? It is the two-by-four moment of her life. I cannot imagine. I mean, I don't have time in this message here, but contemplate that moment. I heard one pastor talk about, well, she just thought he was hungry and wanted to get food. No, 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 no. This... Was ground zero. And what it was the intense contemplation? It actually doesn't talk much about it, but I actually believe <clears throat> that this was actually the moment Mary was given the gospel for herself. And this is perhaps the moment where she converted from being a mother who was saying to her son, follow me into where the son was saying, hey mom, follow me. I love my son back there, he's 24. But if he said to me at lunch today, hey dad, you've mentored me a lot, but now it's time for me to start mentoring you. (laughs) Yeah, no way, there, I would just, I'd admire his courage and I'd admire and I'd say, let's go to mentoring session number one and I would enjoy the humor of it all, right? But this was cosmic, right? And she had to sit there and say, will I follow my son? And how do we know she did? Because we actually don't see her until the cross. We don't see her again. till so she's watching her son hung on a tree. And that's the fourth scene. Is that Mary experiences redemptive suffering. Jesus is led to the cross. This is the divine disruption. And she's, the Bible says she watched the entire thing happen. As they're taking his seamless robe and going to gamble it away, she's watching that scene. Who made the robe? Who makes a seamless garment for somebody? The blood coming out. Was represented by the blood of lambs over the centuries of Jewish history, and now it's her son's blood, and now like it is, uh, like playing in her head. On Sabbatical, my wife and I visited the Vatican, and we walked into St. Peter's Basilica. And if you walk in, it's, it's, it'll take your breath away, first of all. But I looked over the right, and there's a large crowd, and they were all around this statue. And this is Michelangelo's interpretation of Mary holding Jesus. When I walked up to it, I did the first thing in my deconstructed Mary. I mean, he hardly looks wounded. You know, like that's not, Jesus didn't look that pretty when they took him off the cross. Well, if I would just enter into art appreciation, I'd realize Michelangelo was saying that the way I sculpted this was the image of her heart. This is how she felt as a mom. the sword pierces her soul. And she holds her dead son in her lap. The last words we have is Jesus looks down at John and he says, take care of my mom. And he says to his mom, he says, this is your son. So we now know Joseph is dead. So Joseph is not around. So the longest they could have been married was uh, 20 years. She sees her whole life on display. And as she's sitting here, I think, what does contemplation look like here? What does pondering look like here? What does treasuring things in her heart look like here? We don't know. On sabbatical, one of the things I was challenged to do is to write out my life as if it were a uh, chapter book and just work on a table of contents of my life as if it was a story. I came up with nine distinct seasons in my life, four seasons of, um, or four, nine distinct events that changed the direction of my life, and then seven seasons, four seasons of suffering and three seasons of, of bounty and plenty. And it was through that journey that I actually saw the hand of God. It leads me to forgive more, to appreciate more, to trust more, and to actually sign up as a faithful disciple and say, I want to continue to follow this man, Jesus. We don't really know much about the pondering of her at the cross. We can see her there at the scene of the resurrection. The next time we see her is in a CG. In Acts chapter 1, she joined the first small group. And she's there with with the disciples. I mean, what a woman. The biggest thing, honestly, guys, I've had to deconstruct in my life is not my faith or a belief system or a deconstructed Mary. I've had to deconstruct my picture of my ideal life and actually what God actually wants my life to be. You do not get to my stage of life and ever say, I made it. I planted the flag on the hill. I succeeded in everything I set my mind to. No, it's almost the opposite, right? But I will take my real life over my imagined one at any day. Tim Perry, in closing, said this, Mary's life is one that mirrors the lives of many believers with moments of intense spirituality interrupted by extended periods of ambiguity. So Mary, today we bless you. May you continue to bless us. Because Mary, more than anybody else in the scriptures, will lead us to Jesus. In a human, fleshy, mothery, personal intimate way that I can identify with. Because what I want to close with is to contemplate the cross because it is the greatest thing that you can actually contemplate. But I don't want you to contemplate the cross as an event. Think of it also as a template for how to live the ideal life that Jesus has to pick this cross up and is really how we heal the world is by the self-sacrifice displayed on the cross is then how we live as humans. No matter what your job is or what parenting looks like for you or what journey you are on, look at the cross and realize that through self-sacrifice is how we're going to heal the world. And if every business, corporation, and family would operate that way and church, it'd be a different world. So what I want to do in the response as we close is um, I actually want to contemplate as we close the message today and it's a little different but I actually want you to uh, I'm going to have my wife come and we're going to sing a song together called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross but what I want you to do is I want you to pick a time in your life and it could be today it could be at your conversion it could be at the time where your calling was crystallized It could be a confusing time. It could be the most painful time. It could be the most wonderful time. But I want you to pick a point in your life. And I want you to actually go back and and live in that space. And from that space, contemplate the cross. You might walk out with a spirit of gratitude. You might walk out with a spirit of sadness. You might walk out with a spirit of celebration. I don't know. But the cross is the thing. It is what is the direction and the true north of the Christian's life. So the way I want to do the contemplation exercise is I want you to pick your place where you're going to stand in your life. I'm going to ask Jen to come up. Uh, I'm going to turn the lights down low, and we're going to emphasize the cross. And she's going to hum the first verse of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And then we will sing all four verses together. And then she'll close by singing, uh, humming that when I survey verse again, right? So six verses of the song. But can we stop distraction? Nobody leave. Take your phones off. And can you for six minutes dive deep into contemplating your life and the journey God has you on as we survey the wondrous cross? I'm going to dismiss our three ladies. Let's thank them for their uh, Let us stand together. Let's have the lights turned off. Jen, you come and lead us in the exercise.
1: that were